Hello, Physionic Podcast. There are some changes to the Physionic Podcast, which are hopefully welcome. Uh, I'm going to be discussing the usual t- single topic that I discuss. Today's topic is going to be looking at sleep and its impact on anxiety. And then I'd also like to discuss a few other aspects of, well, specifically this time I'm going to be discussing a bit on musculature and what leads to our genetic potential. So you may be aware that after a certain amount of time, uh, you can't just keep building muscle. You can't just grow into a massive ball of muscle. And what might be the reason for that? Full disclosure, I don't actually know the answer, but I'm going to propose a mechanism that I think might be the cause for this slowing of muscle growth. So essentially what I'd like to do with the Physionic podcast uh, that releases on Mondays, typically that's when I've had it release uh, in the past, is I'd like to make it a little more long form and discuss some just interesting things that I find in health and exercise physiology and medicine and things of that nature beyond just the single topic. But I will certainly always begin with that first primary topic. So in this case, the sleep and anxiety aspect. But what you can look forward to on uh, video format and while well, I'll probably have it for podcasts as well as well as for Instagram, uh, this week you can look forward to how creatine impacts traumatic brain injury. So if you are a football player, if you're a contact sport player, then I'll be discussing a paper that looks at creatine and its impact on traumatic brain injury or just uh, TBI. I'm sure you've heard of that, especially in the NFL. That's a big, big, big topic. Uh, Really, really interesting paper. Uh, Easy to understand, so hopefully I I presented it well enough. Uh, And if you've got any questions, as usual, you're always welcome to to reach out to me. Uh, The second topic that I'm especially interested in is the effect of saturated fat or high intakes of saturated fat and how it impacts total and LDL cholesterol in individuals that have a particular sensitivity to what's called ApoB type cholesterol. So if, you, if you've ever been to the doctor and the doctor has told you that you have high ApoB levels, then that particular paper and that particular discussion, which will release, I believe, Thursday, uh, will be discussing how saturated fat uh, intake affects uh, our cholesterol. If you're sensitive to uh, having that elevated ApoB level. But with that said, let's jump into a bit of how sleep affects anxiety. So according to new research of Berkeley, this is actually by the lab of Matthew Walker. You may or may not be familiar with Matthew Walker. He's done a few TED Talks. He's also been on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast, and he's been on a series of other podcasts. And he has a book which I'm actually currently reading, called Why We Sleep. Uh, Thoroughly enjoying that read. If you're uh, interested in learning some science without getting too, too bogged down with all the molecular aspects, that it's it's a good book. It's a good book so far. I'm about, uh, I'd say about a third of the way through, and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. I'm learning quite a bit, and it's getting me intrigued on some of the cellular aspects, what's going on in our body that's leading to some of the changes that we see in sleep. So 
naturally his lab looks at sleep and he looks at uh, in this particular study which just released a few days ago maybe a week ago now uh, looking at how sleep is associated with anxiety and more specifically has an inverse relationship meaning that the if you get substantial amounts of sleep you allow your body to sleep and your mind your your brain to sleep as it should then you tend to have reduced levels of anxiety quite substantial i think their numbers that they were throwing out there were like 30 or 40 percent reductions in anxiety uh, don't quote me on that but no doubt there is a strong inverse correlation between sleep and anxiety now of course you can't necessarily say that that is causative because it's an association. They're not uh, eliminating all the other variables and then just introducing sleep and seeing what happens to anxiety levels. But based off of a particular questionnaire that's designed to, to test anxiety, they found that uh, sleep, specifically related to non-REM sleep, uh, which is deep sleep. So there are diff four different stages of, of deep sleep. And really just we kind of circulate through those stages. And so when we sleep, we have these 90-minute blocks of sleep, which are split between kind of generally REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep. So if you think of like dreaming, that's typically when we dream and creatively named non-REM sleep. So really easy to remember there. So in these 90-minute blocks, you have... Uh, different amounts of non-REM sleep compared to REM sleep. And I believe in the first four hours, so let's say the average sleep time that you're supposed to be getting is eight hours, I believe the first four hours, so the first few 90-minute blocks, tend to be more highly proportionally uh, non-REM sleep. So more non-REM sleep, and then we enter more REM sleep kind of later on in that, that latter four-hour block. Now, more non-REM sleep allows for a lower anxiety level. So that's where they're getting that association. So individuals who deprive themselves of total sleep as well as the quality of sleep, that's important. So if you're waking up, let's say, 10 times in a night, that's reduced quality of sleep. Uh, also, quality could be measured by the amount of time that you're non-REM versus REM sleep uh, based on what your body needs. Now, that's harder to detect. That's something that you'd probably need to go into a lab to find out. But if you're waking up often in your sleep, that might be an indication. And when I mean waking up, I mean waking up for, let's say, longer than like 15 minutes. Like you can't fall back asleep. I realize that some people will wake up briefly, kind of adjust and move to a different location on the bed and then be out cold again 30 seconds later. Uh, that may not be what we're talking about here. But uh, yeah, so if you have reduced non-REM sleep, if that's in the amount or the quality of that non-REM sleep, synchronous or uh, the same as deep sleep, then you see increases in anxiety with, with lower levels of uh, non-REM. So this is giving some basis that, and I don't think that's overly too shocking to think that sleep is going to have a profound impact on our anxiety level. Sleep already affects the emotional centers of our brain to the point that if you don't get enough sleep or the quality of sleep, again, it's always going to be kind of both combined, then you're, you're going to see uh, a 
a lowered ability to control your emotions. Uh, you'll be less rational, less able to think, dampening of that prefrontal cortex, which is right where your forehead is. So if you touch your forehead, right behind that is where your uh, frontal cortex is. So a lot of different indications that would imply that sleep, of course, has a direct impact, but based off this study, specifically in association. So really, what can we take away from this? And I think that's probably going to be pretty uh obvious, but trying to get the ample amount of sleep, at least seven hours of sleep, uh, preferably eight or nine. Of course, it's going to depend. It's going to change on how old you are, what your sex is, uh, things, your activity level. All those things are all going to play factors. Uh, so if you get the ample amount of sleep that you're supposed to get, that is one massive factor that could reduce anxiety levels substantially. So I thought that was cool. I thought I'd share and of course, I'll have the, the uh, paper linked for you uh, down below. Okay, so now the other topic I wanted to talk about was the genetic potential of musculature. I was listening to the Stronger by Science podcast that is hosted and co-hosted by, I believe, Eric Trexler and Greg Knuckles. Uh, I followed Greg Knuckles for a while now, really smart guy, so is Eric from, from the little that I followed so far. And uh, they mention what could be the genetic potential of muscle. And I thought I'd chime in because I've got a different theory or different hypothesis than uh, what Greg offered. Although I do, I think I would probably tend to agree with what Greg has to say as well. So the idea being, the question is, as we build muscle, what forces our body to reduce the ability to build more muscle. So why can't we just like, let's say year one, why after year one does the accrual of muscle decrease to let's say half? I don't know what the actual number is, but it reduces, then year two it reduces again, year three, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. As we go along in our training age, uh, the percent of muscle that we can grow decreases. It keeps getting cut until eventually we reach our genetic potential, as people say, our genetic peak, wherein you're, we're not going to be building any more muscle. We can essentially just maintain, we can get stronger maybe, but we can't build uh, any noticeable amount of musculature. Now, throwing, <laughs> without throwing hormones and age and things like that, because those are no doubt going to play factors, that's probably not the main reason why we don't hit our genetic potential or we do hit our genetic potential and the fact that we have a genetic potential. So what Greg was saying is that there's a potential, and this is based off of a study that he was talking about, where if you have greater capillarization, meaning that, uh, well, you're, let's say you've got a, a muscle and uh, for that muscle to be fed with oxygen, nutrients, things of that nature, for, for our red blood cells to move to that muscle and actually be able to exchange different factors, again, if that's oxygen, nutrients, we have the smallest unit of uh, tubing, 
I think that's a good way to put it, tubing that kind of infiltrates into the musculature and around the musculature, and that's called capillaries or capillary beds where you have this exchange of nutrients and kind of the the buildup in the musculature needs to be, uh, we need to get rid of that. So the, the muscle cells will dump some of that excess stuff, whatever it might be, uh, into the capillary system and then it gets pumped back up to the heart and then we breathe it out or it might go to the intestinal tract and we might you know get rid of it or it might go to the urinary tract, whatever, whatever it might be. Uh, we have to be, have this exchange and that's how it's done through capillary. So the more capillaries you have, presumably the more nutrients you would have, or at least the capability to allow those nutrients to move across the cells, to move into the cells, and move out of the cells, as well as oxygen, things of that nature. So the study was showing that greater capillarization was leading to greater levels of muscle hypertrophy, muscle growth. And he was saying that one of the mechanisms, and he wasn't saying this is the only mechanism, but what he thinks could be happening is that one of the mechanisms or one of the uh, limiting factors for <clears throat> the genetic potential is not necessarily the musculature itself, although there certainly could be mechanisms within, but more so the delivery of oxygen. So the inability for <clears throat> the cells of the musculature to generate enough energy or to use oxygen in general, because we, in our resting state, like me right now, you listening to this, unless uh, you're, you're in the middle of a uh, squat, <laughs> in that case, you're, as you're just sitting here or you know, just listening to this relatively passively, even if you're running kind of long distance, you're using a lot of oxygen. And that's where you're getting a lot of that energy. You're getting that that production of ATP. So your cells use oxygen to produce ATP, cellular energy. So if the muscle gets large, 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 it keeps growing and growing and growing, eventually there's a limiting factor where the capillaries can't deliver enough oxygen, can't deliver enough nutrients to maintain that musculature uh, forever to the point where it just continues to grow. So that may be a mechanism for why we see this genetic potential, that it's limited by the blood supply or the, the supply of these nutrients and oxygen. And while I, I agree, I, I do think that that is certainly a component, I don't think that's the only component. And again, I'm not saying that uh, Greg was, was saying that's the only component. He specifically says it's not. But I would argue that also another potential factor is that as the cells grow, as the muscle cells grow, let's say they're they're relatively thin, they start to, to, to grow, grow, grow as the, the different proteins within the contractile units uh, continue to, to multiply, uh, which is myofibrillar hypertrophy, that leads to this growth of the musculature. And that can lead to essentially the, the membrane of the muscle cell to stretch. And that's one of the mechanisms by which we achieve muscle hypertrophy. I've got an article on that as well as a video if you'd like to check that out. Uh, and this stretch, so as we contract our musculature, that stretch allows particular proteins, particular molecules, particular enzymes uh, in this particular situation called phospholipase, 
This phospholipase allows for the production of a particular other molecule, which I believe is phosphoatidic acid. I, I think that's right. I hope that's right. <laughs> and this uh, phosphoatidic acid, or well, I'm just going to call it the, the production molecule, the muscle molecule, uh, it will then act on our genes through indirect means. It actually interacts with other molecules, and then those interact with our genes. But essentially, this production of this muscle molecule allows for the uh, stimulation of muscle protein synthetic uh, pro just the production of these muscle th muscle synthetic proteins and that happens just from the from the contraction of the musculature as you are lifting a weight now if your musculature gets larger and larger and larger it's possible unless the the cell membrane were to be enlarged as well so it's stretched like it can stretch to a degree you can imagine that if it doesn't get added components to it the the tightness of that membrane is going to continue to grow and grow and grow until the molecules within that are embedded aren't going to react as much to the stretch and the contraction when you add load to that musculature. It's going to be able to handle it extremely well, but that signal is going to get weaker and weaker because that that uh, phosph the uh, lipase will not be stimulated as much to produce this particular molecule. And this is just one pathway by which we, we have muscle protein synthesis and therefore uh, muscle growth well presumably muscle growth because muscle protein synthesis does not always lead to muscle growth uh, that's that's a topic for another time but so you can see that if you were to continuously build proteins functional proteins within the musculature and it continues to grow outwards that membrane has to stretch and stretch and stretch to make room for what's growing inside that membrane inside that cell so when you're contracting you're not necessarily stretching it that much further or you're not contracting it that much further so you're getting less and less signal to actually produce more musculature. Now, on the other hand, if you were to lose some of that musculature and then go back into the gym, and then you would start to regain some of that protein synthetic ability. So that is simply a theory. That's just a hypothesis I'm throwing out there. I have zero proof of this whatsoever other than I know this is a mechanism for protein synthesis and therefore it could potentially be a mechanism for why we see lower and lower yields of muscle growth uh, from this uh, well this particular proposed mechanism however I will say again that I totally think that part of it could absolutely be because of a lack of oxygen. You're not getting as much ox oxygen delivery, you're not getting as much nutrient delivery. And I'm sure there are other mechanisms as well that may play factors. Maybe you have an inhibition of mTOR, which is the master uh, protein synthetic regulator. What's really interesting about the mechanism I'm mentioning is that through this phospholipase D mechanism, that 
there's a mTOR independent pathway. So it doesn't have to go through mTOR to lead to muscle protein synthesis. And most people don't talk about that because most of any sort of protein synthetic machinery is going to go through this master mTOR uh, protein or, or molecule. But uh, there are certainly other mechanisms that are beside mTOR, mTOR independent. So something to consider. But I would really love to actually hear your opinions. If you've got a different uh, idea, again, I, I don't know the answer. So your guess is just as good as mine. I would, be, I would love to hear from you. And I would love to hear if you've got a different idea, some proposal as to why we see lower and lower uh, accrual of musculature as we get older and older in our training age. So that could be 21 to 29 and you reach your genetic peak at 29 or something like that. And then you maintain it for 20 years after that. So it's not necessarily because of age, unless you, you believe that it's because of age. Uh, I would probably argue against that, but there are certainly other other mechanisms that could be that I'm just not thinking of. So let me know. I'd love to hear your opinion. And with that said, I hope you have an amazing day and I'll catch you in the next one. Have a good one, guys. See ya.